It is Tuesday, October 24th, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, white-tailed deer are being spotted more abundantly in urban areas throughout northwest Arkansas. There'll be times on certain mornings I'll drive around and I can easily count a hundred deer. Plus, nine years of pairing vets and service dogs. So they actually attend 50 to 75 weekly trainings. It's a big commitment. They'll be there with the dog each week. More about a 5K this weekend to support service dogs of distinction. And the Capitol Fools find plenty to make fun of in Washington. That is the problem with doing parodies and and writing tunes and things like that. You know, you're constantly looking at the news story kind of differently than I guess most people do. First up, this hour's news from NPR. KUAF is supported by Hendricks College, one of 40 schools featured in Colleges That Change Lives by author Lauren Pope. Hendricks is nationally recognized among private liberal arts colleges for academic quality, engaged learning, and value. Hendricks.edu slash connect for more. KUAF is supported by Groundwork, workforce housing for Northwest Arkansas. Groundwork aims to create a variety of housing options and mixed-income neighborhoods for the region's workers and their families. More information at groundworknwa.org. This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, October 24th, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. And I'm Kyle Kellams. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Ahead on today's show, matching service dogs with vets. We'll learn more about Fayetteville-based service dogs of distinction. First today, herds of white-tailed deer are increasing in northwest Arkansas, welcomed by wildlife enthusiasts. But, as Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Frelick reports, wild deer populations in urban spaces pose certain risks. A herd of white-tailed deer peacefully browse in this forested neighborhood in Fayetteville this morning on lawns, gardens, and bushes. Ryan Gutierrez is Senior Animal Services Officer for Faithful Animal Services. He monitors deer populations. Deer cohabitate with us. So with the population increase and new construction and landscaping that is enticive to the deer, such as um, forage that is readily available for them to eat and natural predators are driven off, it, it creates a breeding ground Antlered bucks and does with six-month-old twin fawns can be seen in this area feasting on fall acorns and hickory nuts in advance of winter. Deer startle easily and will bound across roadways, creating a hazard for both animals and drivers. Gutierrez says he receives lots of deer calls. On average, I would say it's 200 to 250 now. That, um, we've become a little bit more hands-off, where in the past we were actively euthanizing injured deer ourselves as officers. Um, We don't carry lethal force weapons, so we were having to uh, sedate uh, with a sedative on scene, bring the deer back to the shelter, and euthanizing at the shelter with injection. Bucks can weigh up to 160 pounds, which can be a challenge for local animal services staff to manage. Instead, fatally injured deer cases are referred to local police or Arkansas Game and Fish Commission agents. Ralph Meeker is deer program coordinator for Arkansas Game and Fish Commission. He says no deer census exists, but the agency is monitoring growing deer densities across the state. 
uh, counting deer. Uh, there are a few different methods that we use. Uh, trail camera surveys, we do uh, spotlight surveys, we do uh, thermal imagery surveys, uh, and now that we have access to drones, we're, we're dabbling in doing aerial uh, thermal surveys. The agency actually is responsible for restoring white-tailed deer populations in the state. In the early 20s through the 50s, we restocked deer from several states uh, around the nation uh, in an effort to repopulate Arkansas because of unregulated hunting in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Deer almost went extinct, uh, believe it or not, here in Arkansas. Ozark deer herds are genetically linked to remnant ancestral herds, research shows, but most white-tailed deer in Arkansas today trace back to Wisconsin deer. I mean, we have higher deer densities in south-central Arkansas, what we call our pine country or our timber country. But over time, what we're starting to see is that northwest Arkansas counties uh, are starting to catch up. And cities and towns provide secure human habitat for wild deer, Meeker says. Deer are generalists. They are habitat generalists. And that's one of the great things about uh, white-tailed deer is they're very adaptable to their surroundings. Um, and so they're, they're finding that in urban areas, there's, you know, large green spaces. There's great things to eat. They're learning that, uh, you know, by having their fawns closer to human uh, occupied, occupied spaces that predation from things like coyotes and bobcats is going down. So their survivability of their fawns. Meeker says a lack of predators also contributes to higher deer populations, which is why licensed hunters play a key role in keeping white-tailed deer populations in check. With hundreds of thousands legally harvested annually in Arkansas, Chronic wasting disease, or CWD, is also thinning herd, the fatal neurological disease which began to sicken deer, elk, and moose in Colorado in the 1960s, was first documented on the Buffalo River watershed in the winter of 2016. Surveillance maps show that the disease has spread to 18 counties in Arkansas, most concentrated in Boone, Carroll, Newton, and Madison counties. Of those, 28 cases have been confirmed in Washington County. Again, Fayetteville Animal Services Officer Ryan Gutierrez. Symptoms would be almost um, a zombie-like state, I would say, because it's neurological. Something you might see in um, uh, raccoons that have distemper, um, drooling, um, wasting away, basically. To educate the public about Deer Fateful posts a comprehensive deer management page. There's a great slideshow um, on there about options to reduce the, the population, chronic wasting disease, but also there's the city ordinance in regards to feeding deer, which is it's against the law. Deer tend to flock to bird feeders enjoying the seed, but certain residents also put out corn, fruit, and vegetables, especially in Eureka Springs, where lots of wildlife enthusiasts reside. There'll be times on certain mornings I'll drive around and I can easily count a hundred deer. Longtime Eureka Springs Animal Control Officer Jim Evans says an overabundance of nuisance deer began surging in 2010. As a consequence, voters approved a limited number of urban bow hunting permits. I think they found that that really didn't work well inside the city. Because anti-hunting residents banged pots and pans, driving deer away from hunters' tree stands. 
The city has since outlawed feeding deer within city limits, and the population is in decline, he says, citing a vehicular metric. Deer car collisions, I would probably be involved in 25 to 45 a year. But now it seems like I rarely am involved in 15 to 20. Evan says urban dwellers in particular need to learn to safely cohabitate with deer and other wildlife. And always remember that, that you're the one that moved into their environment. They didn't move into ours. Wildlife experts warn drivers to scan roadways at dawn and dusk for deer crossings, especially during autumnal breeding and hunting season. Bucks by age two will migrate to diversify the species gene pool, maintaining healthy deer on our landscapes. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. The calendar says it's fall, and finally, the weather is starting to do the same thing. Joining me in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2 to discuss some fall activity suggestions is Ozarks at Large's Jack Travis. Hi, Jack. Hi, Matthew. That's right. The air is starting to gain a chill, and the leaves are on the brink of turning. So today, I'm going to talk about some excellent opportunities for outdoor recreation around northwest Arkansas that will allow you to take full advantage of what is arguably the region's best time of year. Okay, let's hear your first recommendation. Okay, so I'd like to start off by talking about two great accessible hikes that take you down paths ripe with natural beauty. First, we're going to go to Hobbs State Park near Rogers, The Ozark Plateau Trail is a wonderful trail there that's only three-quarters of a mile long. Plus, it's completely paved and wheelchair-friendly. This trail is perfect for an afternoon stroll on a brisk autumnal day. Wildlife is abundant in Hobbs State Park, so you'll probably run into some furry or feathered (laughs) friends during your walk as they use this time of year to fatten up before winter. I also use this time to do that, too. Oh, you hibernate? Yeah. (laughs) I wish I did. No, I just fatten up before the winter. (laughs) Um, Well, the park is also hosting a family-friendly event on October 28th called the Living Forest Mystery. The main attraction will be a 40-minute guided hike down the Ozark Plateau Trail in which kids can interact with costume characters and solve a mystery. It sounds pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, Consider checking out some of the harder trails while you're in the park, like the eight-mile-long Pigeon's Roost Loop near Beaver Lake. I've backpacked that. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Or staying at one of the park's cabins or campsites. Visit Arkansas State Park's website for more information about the park's trails and accommodations. Very good. Hobbs State Park and the many trails within it. Excellent. All right, where to next? So the next trail is going to take you to Eden Falls up the Lost Valley Trail. This path is located in the heart of the Ozarks near Boxley Valley Historic District in the Buffalo River Wilderness. The trail is very easy to follow once you exit the parking lot. It leads you up a box canyon alongside Clark Creek under the shade of giant beech trees. A small waterfall and a giant natural amphitheater meet you near the top. Now, this next part might be a bit tricky. It, uh, the trail then follows some steps up above the waterfall, and you'll reach the picturesque Eden Falls up at the top. It's really amazing, and the best part about it is the cascade flows out of a 200-foot cave. And mm. if you're brave enough and you have a flashlight handy and maybe some uh, you know, shoes that you're okay with getting a little bit dirty, uh, you can hike into the cave and view an additional 25-foot waterfall. 
It's really, honestly, a -a one-of-a-kind experience, and I highly recommend it to anyone uh, that can make it out there. The best part about Lost Valley is how you can really choose your own adventure. You can either stop at that first waterfall, you can go up the steps and view the second one, or you can go into the cave and view the third. There's three different ones, all different experience levels required. There are plenty of benches for resting and wildlife viewing along the trail, Visit the National Park Service's website for more information and directions on how to get there. Yeah, I I visited Lost Valley during the COVID summer of 2020, and I love that it's a place people of all comfort levels can go and feel like they're doing it right. Absolutely. All right, you've got one more for us? One more. Okay, I'd like to end the conversation with a cycling recommendation because, you know, you can't talk about Northwest Arkansas without mentioning bikes. That's right. (laughs) Now, gravel cycling is gaining a ton of traction in the cycling community. Uh, Listeners can check out my story on that for the hows and whys. Mm -hmm. But today, I'm going to offer up a nice gravel loop just 18 miles away from downtown Fayetteville. Uh, The Sugar Tree 50-kilometer loop starts at Lincoln Lake Trailhead and takes riders up dirt roads to the Sugar Tree Mountain Ridge Line, where they can view the historic Cincinnati Valley in all of its fall foliaged glory. Outdoor enthusiasts can stay in the area for some phenomenal bouldering, sport climbing, trail running, mountain biking, all around Lincoln Lake. It's a fantastic area. Experience Fayetteville and Ride with GPS have a great map on their website for anyone interested in tackling this challenging but also rewarding ride. Jack Travis is our resident outdoor recreation aficionado here at Ozarks at Large. Thank you, Jack. Thank you, Matthew. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. A private meeting was held in Little Rock on Friday to discuss possible changes to the Buffalo National River's federal designation. State Senator Brian King of Green Forest attended and has gone on record opposing any change. Runway Group LLC hosted the meeting. They're the group co-founded by Walmart heirs Stewart and Tom Walton. Senator King says at the private meeting, a half dozen say lawmakers heard from Runway's Director of State and Federal Affairs, Mary Robin Castile. She did a good job of walking through the timeline of why we are at the point we are right now. And basically, one thing that I did learn is that the runway group, the Waltons and the Natural State Committee and the the governor's husband were having some talks, informal talks, all the way back to April and May. That committee is the Natural State Advisory Council. It was formed earlier this year by Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders and is chaired by her husband, Brian. Its aim is to make Arkansas a national recreation destination. King declined disclosing what was discussed at the meeting, but he did say Runway addressed allegations that efforts to redesignate the river have been far from transparent. They did say that they, you know, are concerned about the idea that, uh, you know, this was uh, done uh, secret or deceptive. My biggest uh, issue with them was that when they started this conversation, I certainly wasn't involved in this and didn't know anything about it. Uh, The local people did not know anything about it. uh, So this was all kept in a circle amongst the people they visited with. 
and I think that's unfortunate. I think that the, I felt like the local people should have been the first people talked to first and started from the ground up. A town hall is scheduled in Jasper this Thursday at 6 p.m. A runway group rep was scheduled to speak but has since withdrawn. Packrat Outdoor Center is hosting a pint night in support of Arkansas backcountry hunters and anglers tomorrow from 5.30 until 8. The event will feature local breweries, local food, and outdoor gear giveaways. Packrat Sales Representative Peyton Short says pint nights are a way for the community to give back to impactful nonprofits. But they are always a really popular event just because not only are you getting... Like our brands are bringing uh, all kinds of prizes and things of that nature to give away, but also Fossil is there, Fossil Cove is there, uh, Crisis Brewing. So it's a lot of local uh, vendors coming to set up. You know, a lot, a lot of times there's local artists. So it's a really good, popular, just local event that a lot of people just come and hang out with, dogs and all that stuff. So it's a really fun, relaxed evening. This is one of Packrat's three fall fundraisers. Short says each one is unique and supports a different nonprofit. The next two will support the NWA Land Trust and pedal it forward. Many times people, you know, maybe hearing about them for the first time, and they end up actually, some have gotten involved in the past and stuff like that from, you know, going from never hearing about these organizations to becoming like part of or members of them. For more information, you can go to packratoc.com. The Botanical Garden of the Ozarks is hosting the Halloween costume parade tomorrow morning from 9 to 11. The program is part of Little Sprouts, a weekly interactive story and activity time for preschoolers and their caregivers. Everyone is encouraged to wear costumes and explore the garden filled with over 50 scarecrows created for the Scarecrow Showdown community art installation and competition. The event is free for garden members. For non-members, children under three are free. Four years and older is $5, and adults accompanying children can get in for 10 More details at bgozarks.org. This is Ozarks at Large. Saturday morning, runners and walkers will be covering a few miles to help veterans get a helping hand or a helping paw. The sixth annual Howling 5K Run and Dog Walk will benefit Service Dogs of Distinction, a nonprofit that pairs vets and canines. Marsha Wyatt, a co-founder of the organization, says the group has been connecting vets and dogs for about nine years, and their work is often spread by word of mouth. Veterans are a very private group of people, even though we all know them or one or more, they like to talk to each other and word of mouth from other veterans is the best way for them to follow a direction, whether it's a service dog or a social agency or whatever it is that they might need. So we um, contacted the VA, we contacted other support agencies for veterans in the area. Um, Of course, we advertised and uh, the word got around. We met Marcia a few weeks ago at the Service Dogs of Distinction training location in Washington County. We were joined by Carrie Dresch, a vet who met her service dog, Hank, through Service Dogs of Distinction. Carrie says their pairing came a few weeks into Carrie's participation in the program. Marcia and Don brought the dogs and just let them go, and they found their vet, and Hank found me, and... Um, we worked together, and the more we worked together, the, the tighter our bond got. And it was just, it was an amazing opportunity, and I'm so thankful that I was able to, to participate. 
Marcia Wyatt says all of the dogs trained to work with vets through her organization are either rescue, shelter, or donated dogs. The process begins with basic training. Dogs are one to three years old, live with their trainers. After two to three months of basic obedience, she says the chance for matching dogs and vets begins. Once the human canine teams have been developed, there are weeks of small classes, no more than four to five teams working together. And like the teaming between Carrie and her dog, Hank, Service Dogs of Distinction lets the dogs lead the matchmaking process. So we let the dogs kind of gravitate to who they think is a good fit for them, and then we kind of see how that develops. Um, Our program is 12 to 15 months long, and each veteran or civilian that's in the program commits to a weekly training for that entire time. So they actually attend 50 to 75 weekly trainings. It's a big commitment. They'll be there with the dog each week. We give them homework. They come back the next week. The dog tells us if they did their homework or not. And it's a long, slow, methodical process so that nobody feels rushed. What happens next, she says, is a patient process to make sure each pair bonds and progresses at a comfortable pace. Most of our veterans have PTSD or TBI. It causes a little brain fog. It causes memory problems. Um, So sometimes the uptake on information is slow or forgotten easily. So we just go at whatever speed each team needs to go. Carrie Dresch says that comfortable pace paid off for her. She worried about whether she was working with Hank correctly. Was she screwing up the training? A service dog veteran working relationship requires a lot of work, including assimilation into a family setting. Hank came into a home with Carrie's husband and two pet dogs, Frankie and Daisy. Carrie says assimilation for both humans and dogs is essential. Because there's this new dog in the house and he's cute and fun and and but he's working. And it's very difficult to not, for my, especially for my husband, to not want to pet him. Um, but going through the program, and once we did get Hank home and he kind of got into a routine, um, we would go out just to train. And that got me out of the house where I wasn't before. And we would go places and I would be like okay well let's try something new so I would stretch a little bit more um, Hank does not like bowling he got used to it the eighth frame of the last game he was okay um, but we've we've gone through a lot of adventures together a lot of firsts together building trust works both ways Carrie says it took her about a year to really allow Hank to help her she says she was taking a cruise with her dog and it was a little stressful, and I allowed him to do his job, and it was like an aha moment. And she says that cruise was different from previous trips, thanks to Hank. Previously, Carrie says she had stayed in a room. Hank gave her confidence to move about the ship. That relationship has continued. Marsha Wyatt says those bonds are exactly what her organization is working toward. She describes Service Dogs of Distinction as a very nonprofit operation. After nine years, still no salaried employees. All money raised goes directly to the training process. Veterans that have come into the program who literally were shaking the entire time, couldn't make eye contact, they were medicated to almost zombie world. Uh, And then four or five months later, they have a dog they've been working with and they're taking those baby steps. 
and we watch them come into training and they might be laughing, telling a joke to another veteran, playing with their dog, their heads held high. There's a whole different, um, a whole different picture of that individual through our eyes. Gary says the help from Marsha and the trainers doesn't end with the completion of the classes. She says she's called or texted with several questions since she and Hank graduated from the program. And Carrie says the difference in her life has been monumental. If you're in that dark space, if you're, if you need something, a service dog is an amazing tool. And the joy and the love. I'm more of a helicopter mom over my service dog than I was over each of my children. I worry more about him. Um, but I say go for it. Go for it. This Saturday's Howling 5K Run and Dog Walk is one of the major fundraisers for service dogs of distinction. Both the run and the walk will begin at Wilson Park in Fayetteville. The 5K Run at 830, the 1K Dog Walk at 9. You can learn more about the event and more about the organization at servicedogsofdistinction.org or at the Service Dogs of Distinction Facebook or Instagram pages. This is Ozarks at Large. On the latest points of departure, climate change is already reshaping our world. How the forests are being burned just to grow palm oil, or I see so many people with masks in India or in Nepal, in Kathmandu, because the air is so unbreathable. Combating climate crisis through adventure with Nacho Dean. Listen to Points of Departure wherever you get your podcasts or at KUAF.com. Poking fun at American politicians isn't anything new. 100 years ago, Will Rogers was observing that if pro was the opposite of con, was Congress the opposite of progress? Will Rogers would have liked the Capitol Fools. The former congressional staffers pen and perform songs and parodies of all things American politics. The Fools are direct performing descendants from the Capitol Steps, a troupe that developed a loyal following through tours, public radio specials, and CDs. The Capitol Fools will be at the Walton Arts Center Thursday night. Last week, I called Mark Eaton, writer for the Capitol Fools, and I asked him if a week like last week, with a constantly evolving effort to select a new Speaker of the House, was a particularly rich week for a political parodist. That is the problem with doing parodies and, and writing tunes and things like that. You know, you're constantly looking at the news story kind of differently than I think guess most people do. Um, when it comes to no speaker, I mean, I guess, you know, we're just kind of holding back. Somebody, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be somebody. Uh, it's just a matter of who. And then hopefully, um, with any luck, it'll be a name that rhymes with a lot of stuff. And then we can take it from there. Yeah. Do you, you know, were you for about 36 hours thinking Scalise? What can go with Scalise? Jordan, what can go with Jordan? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the way it kind of works. But, um, you know, when in doubt, you just kind of you cheat or you, um, you know, use uh, then you have maybe Nancy Pelosi sing a song about that person. What a failure they were compared to her. And they got some, you know, big high heels to fill kind of thing. You know, there's always different angles to take. And does it work then sort of the same way with pop culture, what things that you might frame a political story in, you know, sort of emerging like, oh, we could, I don't know, whatever the popular show or movie is of the day, we could make an Oppenheimer connection or something? Yeah, that happens. Um, I know we certainly, um, you can't, and certainly this year, you can't do something without having a Barbie reference. Um, and I'm pretty sure, I think we've had a Taylor Swift reference. I mean, there's always things that pop up on the, on the, you know, pop culture meter 
that uh, hopefully everybody knows about. And, um, you know, some of those references are ultimately decided by the audience, just like what songs are in the show. Uh, we've written plenty of things or made references that we think are absolutely hilarious, only to get uh, polite golf applause from the audience. <laughs> and then you decide, you know, maybe that story isn't all across the country. Maybe that's uh, inside the Beltway kind of deal. Yeah, that, that is interesting, because if you're there in D.C. and you're immersed in it all the time, that might not be the case, you know, outside of the Beltway. I hadn't thought about that. You've got to be both contemporary, current, but also somewhat universal. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, we used to kind of have a, have a rule that, you know, if, if the late night comedians kind of started talking about something, then hopefully it was, you know, out there, everybody knew about it. But, uh, yeah, the goal is to make something play as well in D.C. as it plays in Peoria, as it plays in Fayetteville, as it plays across the country. You know, you want everybody to enjoy it and everybody have the kind of have the same amount of laughs. Now, if we're in a state where maybe, you know, you know, you're if you're in Florida and do some DeSantis stuff and it gets huge laughs, it might not get the same laughs elsewhere. But, um, you know, that's fine, too. Do you ever you don't have to answer this question, but do you ever find yourself maybe personally wanting one person to get elected, but you think to yourself, yeah, but if that person gets elected, boy, that is rich material. <laughs> well, I think you can kind of lean that way a little bit, but let's face it. It's always a target rich environment. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, when I started in the group, um, you know, it was when George W. Bush was first or senior, I take it back. Senior was the president. So you had Dan Quayle. So you always had somebody in the mix. Then, of course, Clinton comes along, who is the mother load of political humor. Hmm. Um, he gets followed by George W., who is great. Everybody and you know, in the audience keeps saying, oh, my gosh, you guys are so lucky. There's never be anybody better than this. There'll never be anybody better than this. And it just constantly keeps happening because there's always something funny about all of them. Do most targets of your parody, of your satire, of your tunes see it as a compliment? You know, it's kind of a mixed bag. I mean, we have done plenty of shows with members in the House. With, we've done shows for presidents. This is going back to the old Capitol Steps days. And um, you kind of reach a, a point of where their their egos are such that they're almost upset if they're not mentioned in the show, like they're not a big enough deal to be made fun of, even if it's something simple, you know, like somebody just, you know, messes up a date on something. You know, that was the famous George Bush Sr. story back when I was Capitol Step. We did a show. And uh, he had forgotten the date of Pearl Harbor, you know, mm -hmm. in a speech. He just kind of mis misnamed it. And uh, we kind of went through the show and because his staff had said, don't do stuff that picks on him. And so we did, you know, half hour of kind of everybody else. And he stood up and, you know, in George Bush senior kind of way, said, well, that was fantastic. <laughs> but now I want to see the stuff about me. And he just walked back and sat down. <laughs> and so we kind of scrambled around and we started doing the show. And the song at that time was try to remember that date in December for <laughs> Pearl Harbor. And he just loved it. You know, he didn't want to be you know, kid gloved by his own staff. So, you know, that is kind of the thing that if, a, if members feel like they've made it, if they've done, you know, I, I, I'm assuming they don't want to be for something totally stupid. But uh, to feel like they're on the national national radar probably makes them feel pretty good. Of course, the, the classic Broadway musicals have you know, what they call a showstopper, one that ideally literally stops the show because of applause. Do you think in that same term? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny in a show like ours, since we're not really telling a, a linear sure. story, 
we're just kind of jumping around. I'd love to have five showstoppers <laughs> in the in the show, you know. And you go back to some of the, you know, maybe some of the great Broadway shows, you know, and you say, okay, what's a showstopper in that? Okay, uh, Man of La Mancha has Impossible Dream. Okay, no doubt about it, showstopper. All right, we'll have two congressmen trying to work together, causing it the implausible dream because they just can't get together and make it work across the aisle. You know, it's things like that. Um, so, like I say, we we try to have. Uh, as many as many big showstoppers <laughs> as we can. Do you have a rhyme in your history of writing for Capital Steps and Capital Fools that you went, yep, that that's gold? <laughs> oh, boy. Um, you know, a couple of my favorites. Um, hmm. You know, when George Bush was president, I wrote a um, the the famous. Uh, song uh, don't go breaking my heart mm-hmm. uh, by elton john and kiki d and so i made it george and laura and then she's singing to him don't go fake and you're smart <laughs> and um i always liked that one a lot because uh, i got a great reaction and it was it was funny because that's one of those you know george had the reputation of not being the smartest guy obviously but yet republicans weren't offended by that they kind of found it endearing and it was kind of his thing while you know democrats would laugh uproariously because oh this guy's a dum-dum the Republicans laugh just as much, going, yeah, he's ours. We love him, you know, kind of thing. Right. <laughs> and, um, you know, for The Fools, uh, recently I wrote, um, you know, a parody of Bye Bye American Pie, um, which is just a guy kind of pleading, can we say bye-bye to that orange-haired guy? Are there certain things you feel like, ah, we just don't want to touch it? I mean, you know, Congressperson Lauren Bobert being at Beale Juice Musical – is that just something you might want to? Oh no! I, oh, <laughs> oh! I think that's absolutely something that you know that her her dating advice might be um, <laughs> put your hands in the hands of the man I feel you oughta or something like that. Mark Eaton is a writer for the Capital Fools. The Fools will be at Walton Art Center Thursday night at seven. Our conversation was recorded last week. That song is Motion. It comes from the recent release, As We Speak, featuring a distinguished lineup of musicians, Bela Fleck, Edgar Myers, Akir Hussein, and Rakesh Chorasia. The ensemble will be performing music from As We Speak soon at the Walton Arts Center. We reached Bela Fleck in Nashville yesterday to discuss that collaboration, what it's like recording in the studio with such a legendary lineup, and what's different about playing this music live. The concert is November 4th, and we'll share the conversation in just the next few days. And also coming up soon on Ozarks at Large, another musical conversation. This one with our friends, Trout Fishing in America. The duo, one of the headliners at next month's 76th annual Ozark Folk Festival in Eureka Springs. We caught up with Keith and Ezra yesterday. That conversation, too, coming up on an upcoming Ozarks at Large. This is... Ozarks at Large. Randy Wilburn's podcast, I Am Northwest Arkansas, centers on people and events of, well, Northwest Arkansas. Sometimes, though, his interviews take us beyond 
the Northwest Arkansas region. The latest episode is a conversation with Dave Levon, CEO of the Bentonville-based nonprofit LifeWater. LifeWater seeks solutions to global water crises. In the episode, they discuss Dan's journey from the for-profit world to his current role with LifeWater. And in this excerpt of edited comments from the episode, he tells Randy about some of the work LifeWater does. Kind of making it real for everyone. So the first thing I'll say is I'll use Tanzania as an example. When I was still on the LifeWater board, we actually went to scope out an area where we could work, where we thought there was a need. And so what you'll see in areas where we have not worked is you will see primarily women and children taking jerry cans and going to ponds. And you'll see animals defecating in the pond. You'll see it's a kind of a gross pond. And that's in the rainy season. In the dry season, that pond dries up and they're trying to dig into little holes in that area to find water. Yeah. And so typically that's an area where we will go to begin our work. The other thing that's interesting is, first of all, I go quite a bit to visit with our teams and to work with our teams. What I find is people are people. Yeah. You know, it's just families trying to do their best for their kids. In fact, biking, I tell our team all the time, there's tons of bikes in Tanzania. What is amazing is that women will use a bike. They'll have like two or three or even four of these 50-pound jerry cans, and they'll figure out how to ride their bike with them on the jerry cans. Others will walk with them on their heads, but people are people. So we're just coming alongside. We'll bring in a team typically from the larger cities. They may be engineers. They may be behavioral change specialists, and they will actually move to that area and they will work with that team. And it's really a three-year process. This is not about dropping a well. Actually, if you do that, there's about 50,000 abandoned wells in East Africa because it's a quick fix. It's not a superhero mission for us to go put our capes on, but it's for our teams to walk alongside a community and help them change, give them the tools and capacity to change. So our teams will walk along for three years with the community. We will go home to home. So we'll raise up leaders in the community from the community leaders, church leaders, people who are already active and and solid leaders, and we will train them. They'll help us then go house to house. Each house has seven things that they need to do to become a healthy home, including digging a pit latrine, hand washing stations, things like that, Yeah, which is a big deal for the the people in those communities. It's behavior change and there's an investment to do this. And so our teams will walk alongside as homes become healthy. We will typically get over about 90% healthy homes and then we will actually we'll get close to 100 in most cases. But once we get to that 70, 80 mark, we start working also with the churches, really getting the churches together. In Tanzania, we worked with one partner, and then they went and brought in, uh, I think, 41 churches, 11 denominations wow. together and said, guys, we need to work on our community. So really helping the churches in the community to focus on their community. And then also the communities themselves will put in labor. They'll help us dig trench and things. And while we're doing that, we're designing our water system as well. And then we're also going into the schools and we're uh, raising up a student group. And that student group will help promote water sanitation and hygiene practices to mm-hmm. students. They are some of the biggest change makers in the community. And so we'll go and help build latrines. Those are the latrines we build that will be at the schools. Sure. And we'll build changing rooms. Typically, the schools don't have enough <laughs> latrines. Menstruation is seen as taboo. Girls miss just thousands of days of school because of that. And so we'll kind of, we'll work with the community. We'll work with the school. We'll train them that this is normal. This is a time to come together and help. And so we'll see massive change even in the understanding of 
various health issues in a community. And so we'll work alongside schools, government, churches, and we'll help them all become healthier. And then we'll work with the local government to figure out what's the right water solution. Sometimes it's a, a well or a borehole. Other times it's some kind of a sophisticated pipe, more than not, a sophisticated pipe system. Are you surprised by the support that you receive on the ground in the, in the countries that you're in? And do you find that, I mean, it seems like you should be in more countries. Mm. The need is great. And with the program that we have, we, and, and because of the time that we take, and we do that for a reason, because people aren't, it's, it's behavior change. And yeah. people are not going to have sustainable change if, if they don't take the time to investigate the why. Why are we doing this? And some of the how. Here's tools. So I am always surprised and amazed by the teams that we bring together. I mean, we've got a team in Nensebo, Ethiopia. You can't even get there on the main roads during the rainy season. The roads wash out. They take motorbikes up the mountains. They all live in bigger cities. You know, they've all worked hard to get their degrees in engineering and different things. And they volunteer to leave, say, Addis Ababa and move eight hours away to walk alongside people where there is not safe water, there is not sanitation, there is not hygiene practices. So they're moving into that environment to walk alongside communities and help them change. So I'm always blown away and amazed by our teams that are in country. Like our job is to just to help them develop, the, give them the capacity, the tools they need so they can go and do what they do. They're the rock stars of life water. Yeah, I can imagine. And that's, that's interesting. Do you guys get together with the whole team? Does, how does the company organize or get together so that, because I would imagine that I know how it is when I'm doing something, I need as much encouragement as I can get, right? So it's just the reality. How do you kind of bring the troops together and encourage each other? Because it's a yeoman's task that you are, are impressed with. And so it's like, man, I would need encouragement every day getting out of bed to do what you guys do on a regular basis. Well, that is a great question. Actually, uh, two and a half years ago, we sat down as an organization. We did SWOT analysis with all 170 people. We talked about what are the greatest needs and what do we see as the greatest needs going forward. And we came up with a more inward-focused strategic plan. And we said, for the next couple of years, let's build the base. And so two of the main points we did is let's truly be global. Let's truly empower and create opportunity for every employee, no matter where they are. And the second was, let's build a life-giving culture. I think sometimes nonprofits run the risk of, because the cause is so great, that it's okay to burn people out along the way. Yeah. And so how do we enrich our teams? And so with those two themes, we move forward. I think in 22, we launched five software products. We launched wow. Asana so that our engineering projects can globally be, they're transparent. So all of our engineers, whether you're working in Cambodia or Ethiopia, and our, our engineering is headquartered at our Ethiopia office. So all those engineers can collaborate on projects. And so every project is in there. There's accountability there, transparency, collaboration. And what we've seen is that product alone has helped our projects get better. Yeah. Because instead of this hierarchical top-down telling people you have to do this, you have to do this, they can actually look at what their colleagues are doing and they can compare notes and best practices. And so we did that. We have a Bamboo HR product we put oh, yeah. in place yeah. so that every quarter we take pulse surveys on engagement, on how are people feeling valued. And we can track that by position. We can track that by work area or by country. And so because of that, again, the scores are, are great to hear. 
but it's the comments that make a lot of sense and allow us to build strategies with our global HR team. And again, each country's a little different, but they share best practices. We are all in one financial system where there's openness to each country seeing what's going on in every country. And again, to learn from each other. Yeah. And so we just, how we collect data in the field, we're very data driven. So we've got a tool called MWater where we check out before we come to an area, what are the prevalence of diarrhea? How long are, are the walks to water? How much income is spent on the doctors? And we check out a bunch of different fields. And then three years later, we measure it. But we do it with a tool. Yeah. So the people in the field can measure and they can see the result they're having. And they can see what their colleagues in another country are doing and what we collectively are doing. And so we've really invested in tools that help build collaboration, that help build transparency in the organization. And then we've tried to get people together in sure. meaningful ways. We have several times... We have had the whole organization, which is pretty tricky to get everybody on the same <laughs> Zoom call or Google Meet call, but we've done that and uh, actually we do it annually. And then just trying to get collaboration between like Ethiopia and Cambodia, where maybe in the past there wouldn't have been that collaboration, seeing how they share ideas. Yeah. Um, so it's really, really being intentional though, and, and we're having to plan that ahead. Dave Levon is the CEO of LifeWater, a nonprofit based in Bentonville. You can hear this week's complete episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas with Dave and host Randy Wilburn at IamNorthwestArkansas.com, or you can go to KUAF.com, or you can download the show from any major podcast platform. By the way, Ozarks at Large can also be found on all of those podcast platforms. Every daily edition available for you to listen to when you want. You can also go to OzarksAtLarge.com and you can also ask your smart speaker to play Ozarks at Large to hear the most recent edition of our show. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, how a pandemic helped jumpstart a free meal program in Fayetteville. Basically, Donald Trump was paying me to run a socialist mutual aid kitchen and feed homeless people. Uh, he didn't know it, but it, it helped. <laughs> that story and much more tomorrow on Ozarks at Large. Last week on Ozarks at Large, we had part of a conversation that we recorded with three University of Arkansas educators and historians about the U of A Honor College Symposium they'll lead next spring titled Ozark Culture. We didn't have time to present everything from that discussion we wanted to put on the program, so we're making some time today. The three faculty members are Virginia Siegel, the state folklorist of Arkansas, Joshua Youngblood, Instruction and Outreach Unit Head for the Special Collections Division in U of A Libraries, and Jared Phillips, who teaches Ozark History, Rural Development, and Food Systems in the U of A History Department. We'll pick up here with Jared Phillips explaining that they hope this symposium next semester leads to more study of Ozark culture at the University of Arkansas. If we probably could have our wishes, we would see a major in Ozark Studies here. Where the University of Arkansas is one of the only is the only uh, university in the region that does not have in the Ozark region that doesn't have some kind of a program about the Ozarks. Um, and we have had stuff like that in the past when Vance Randolph was here and Mary Celeste Prado were here. They had stuff that kind of sort of amounted to something similar. Um, but we would like to see um, see some dedicated attention uh, for it. And there's there's demand. Every time I talk about teaching the Ozarks, I get kids from across disciplines asking to take a class on it. Um, and that's something I'm sure that you guys hear as well. Oh, yeah. um, 
and so there are other classes that we're going to start offering um, in the spring and in the fall that will hopefully become sort of cyclical, pointing to the idea that one day we can start supporting, you know, minor or major, even graduate studies in those works. Because we have the faculty here and we have the resources in the archives here that we could have, you know, if you, if you want to come and study the Ozarks for real, like, we want to be a place that you come. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, Virginia and I both live in the university libraries. That's, that's our, our base of operations. And, you know, we don't have a, a School of Library and Information Science here. Um, we're, we're not, a, we don't have a teaching load that we're assigned, but we're always looking, and I'll speak for both of us, mm -hmm. Virginia, you, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but we're looking for opportunities to get into the classroom and to, and to work with students directly, to work with research faculty and teaching faculty, like uh, Dr. Phillips here, um, and ways to just to, to show um, the, the broader world of information, but also how information can and should be leveraged uh, for change. Mm -hmm. And so um, getting into the classroom is really exciting um, for us to be able to do that. And we're looking for ways to do that going forward, too. So any way that we can take uh, not just the stuff we have, and I'm, I'm in the special collections, I have lots of stuff, but also the skills we have. And that's something that Virginia can speak to, certainly. It's like, what is, what, what, how do you create, responsibly create an oral history? How do you maintain collections and actually engage in a way that stuff is getting documented, that people are taking what we do on our land-grant mission on the hill here and taking that off um, to the rest of the state? Finally, will you at all address, for those of us who grew up in the Ozarks, the sort of weird relationship we have with this identity that's been thrust upon us? When I was a kid, my cousins would come from outside the Ozarks. They would say, oh... I bet you wear overalls all the time, and I would bristle. And then I look at the pictures of me growing up, and I wore overalls <laughs> all the time, which is fine. I just didn't want my cousins from Kansas telling me I did. My boy, all my kids have worn overalls when they're little. They're, they're convenient handles, you know, to keep them safe on the farm. Um, yes, we will address that head on. Um, there's there's fun things about it. it. You know, images are fun images sometimes, but it, they can also be really damning and damaging. And um, this uh, this question of what we are as a group of people, um, sort of what what it means to be an Ozarker and who we look like, that that image of the barefoot, bedraggled overall, unshaven, ignorant, sometimes violent hillbilly. Um, yeah, there's a, there, there are dark shadows in our cultural like, space that are that, right? Um, but that is, not in ha that is not who we are. Um, and uh, in particular, I guess I, I probably take it more personally than my colleagues do because I'm from <laughs> here. Um, and I will happily wear overalls. Um, but uh, like I am I'm very invested in the idea that people understand we are more than that and that we are we, I mean, we are, we are the home to vibrant musical traditions. We are the home to vibrant artistic traditions, a vibrant ecological movement that had, you know, different uh, vibrant, um, you know, economies of, of, of global scale, some of which I'm highly critical of, but all of them have been instrumental in shaping what America is, right? They have all played a part in who, in, in, in sort of the nature of American life and global life. Um, so an Ozarker can be somebody in, uh, in overalls, but an Ozarker is also J. William Fulbright. An Ozarker is also Harry Truman. An Ozarker is also, um, you know, Mary Celestia Parler and the Marshallese community that is here. And so that is, there is a, there's a wide array of what it means to be an Ozarker. And so, yeah, I'm... And also in the Ozarks of St. James Baptist Church, founded yeah. in the 1860s. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. vibrant communities of color. Happy Hollow, that, south of Cane Hill. Yeah, that's up at that, and these communities persist to this day. Yep. Um, we, we can talk about the shadows in the dark periods. 
racial and ethnic cleansing that have happened in the Ozarks for one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and the repetition of, you know, being, you know, the American headquarters of the KKK and things like that, that people mm-hmm. might know about the Ozarks if they know anything right. yep. outside yep. of it, uh, overalls and, and KKK. Um, but there are, there are you know, one of the people that built Old Main mm-hmm. was an African-American mm-hmm. mill, millman mm-hmm. uh, from Madison County. And so we have a connection here to communities that are much more complicated than just the idea that there was a Scotch-Irish or Anglo-Saxon cultural seed brought to those Ozarks some 200 years ago. It's always been more complicated than that. And so helping people see the nuance there, respecting Jared Phillips or a young Kyle Kellams in their overalls, of course, <laughs> but also seeing the, the, the rest, the rest of the, the sometimes, you know, metaphorically the color, but also sometimes literally the color that's in that picture that sometimes we overlook. Jared Phillips, Joshua Youngblood, and Virginia Siegel will lead the University of Arkansas Honors College Seminar, Ozark Culture, next spring. Krista Bentley is a professor of musicology at the University of Arkansas. She recently contributed to a new collection of essays about Taylor Swift's artistic projects and cultural power titled Taylor Swift, The Songs, The Star, The Fans. The reason why we wanted to talk about Taylor Swift and the the purpose of the book is to use her as a prism for understanding the many different facets of popular music, such as copyright and issues for women in the industry, um, LGBTQ plus interpretations of her work, and then also to use Taylor Swift as a prism for understanding kind of broader cultural phenomena like fandom and social media. You can hear more about Bentley's assessments of Taylor Swift in this month's Short Talks from the Hill, a research podcast from the University of Arkansas. You can listen at KUAF.com, arkansasresearch.uark.edu, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich, Jack Travis, Victoria Hernandez, and Randy Wilburn. Matthew produced the program in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Kyle, this Saturday... Uh, at the Fayetteville Public Library is the Be Aware Allergy-Friendly Halloween Extravaganza. Uh, KUAF will be there yep. in, in some capacity. Uh, and perhaps just as important, mm. my son will be there in Halloween costume. Can't wait to see what he's going to be dressed as. Yeah, we. Uh, uh, this is probably the most excited my wife has been for an event in quite some time is getting him in a Halloween costume. Will I recognize the costume? Is it something that someone my age will relate yes, to? Okay. Yes, yes. Uh, we tend to not be the kind of folks who want to do like Disney Trendy. characters okay. or that sort of thing. Okay. But All you right. will recognize what he has dressed as. It's 10 to noon Saturday. We look forward to seeing you there. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks for being with us. We'll talk to you tomorrow. League of Women Voters of Washington County presents the third annual Dash for Democracy 5K and One Mile Fun Run Walk November 11th at 9 a.m. It takes place at Veterans Memorial Park in Fayetteville. Registration open at lwvarwc.org. Walton Arts Center presents The Capital Fools October 26th as part of its LOL at WAC comedy series. It features former members of the Capitol Steps who were all once Senate staffers. It's an insider's perspective on our current political culture. Tickets at waltonartscenter.org.